So we're in, I think, week six. We got two more weeks of this never-ending series called Follow, uh, talking about what Jesus had to say about what it means to follow him. And I was thinking about when I was, I grew up in a hellfire and brimstone church. I don't know if you know what that is, but because of the way they talked about hell, I asked Jesus to save me from hell when I was six years old. And I was baptized a few weeks later by Brother Armstrong, a fundamental Baptist church. You don't have first names. It's brother and whatever your last name is. And the only reason I remember Brother Armstrong's name is because his daughter, Alicia, was six years old and she was my very first girlfriend. That has nothing to do with the story today other than that's how I remember his name. I, I knew that Jesus saved me, but I didn't know what it meant to follow Jesus because here's the real reason. The basic reason I came to Christ is because of this. That means no hell. Do not say it the other way. That, that's not... That's, when we put this down, it says no hell sign, okay? So, so don't go to hell. That's what that meant to me. And because in that little church, we talked more about hell than anything else. And they said, if you want to go to heaven, if you don't want to go to hell and you want to go to heaven, you have to ask Jesus to forgive your sins. And so, man, I'm like, sign me up. I, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. So if hell is real, how many of you want to go there? If heaven is real, how many of you want to go there? Yeah, see, so I'm not going to throw a lot of stones at this little church. You know, I'm not going to cast stones at them because that church, their message helped me understand my need for Christ. So I came to him at an early age and that message of don't go to hell may mostly kept me out of trouble. Mostly as I grew up, I didn't have sex. I didn't do drugs, but I was a secret, secret drinker of alcohol. And I say secret because I'm the only one who thought it was a secret. Turns out everybody knew and they knew what a hypocrite I was. Because see, I was at church every Sunday morning because Bess Washburn, my mom, that's where she commanded you to be. And even though I'm headstrong and, and somewhat rebellious, it just wasn't worth the fight. Mom would make your life hell. And you want to have no hell, then you better be at church on Sunday morning. So I, I was. And when I got older, we, we had this youth choir. I was in a big Baptist church, five or 600 people there. And we had a youth choir of about 60 to 70 teenagers. And we would go on Sunday nights and we would, we would actually lead worship on Sunday nights. The youth choir would. And on Wednesday nights, I would go to FCA because our youth group, even though we had a hundred kids, we would take to youth camp. We did not have a full-time youth minister until my senior year in high school. And our youth ministry was pretty bad. So all of the athletes, we would go to the school and we would have um, FCA and we'd have a great time there. But in all of that, I did all of that. I went to youth camp every summer um, from my seventh grade year through my 12th grade year. All of that stuff, I never heard what it meant to follow Jesus. And I kind of think some of you are in that same situation. You've never really understood that either. So we got in this series, we've been talking about what Jesus has to say about following, and today he's got a lot more to say. Um, <laughs> one day a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to have eternal life? And they get in this whole long conversation and the Bible says that the rich young ruler turns his back, walks away from Jesus, refuses to follow. Why? Because he was very rich and he decided his stuff was more valuable than going to heaven. So last week I told you, Jesus taught us this. Jesus taught us the value of our soul. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Jesus taught us this. My soul is more valuable than my stuff. This rich young guy walks away because he had it reversed. He said, my stuff is more valuable than my soul. And Jesus kind of looks at him and he shakes his head. And he said, man, it is very difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven because this is his priority. My stuff is more valuable than my soul. 
Well, Peter is there and Peter jumps up and he says, hey, Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 27. We have left everything for you. We don't have Jack. It's all there. If a rich man can't get into heaven, we've given it all. What's in it for us? Look at this, what he says. What then will there be for us? And Jesus says, all right, all right. If you sacrifice anything in this life for the kingdom of God, you'll be rewarded. And they're like, whoa, we gave it all up. This is going to be good because we're in it for us. Shortly after this, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and every one of his followers unfollowed him at the same moment. You want to know why? Because if he's going to be tried and crucified, and if I'm following too closely, I might try be tried and crucified. So if there's no benefit and it might cost me something, I'm out. See ya, Jesus. They were consumers. Now let me say this. Everyone starts out as a consumer, but you cannot remain one and follow Jesus at the same time. All of his followers abandoned him, but they all eventually came back and he forgives them. And this group of cowards who ran away and said, oh no, we can't be associated with him. All of a sudden they become fearless. They turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ. They do it in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified. They, they didn't identify him with him. Now they're going to turn the world upside down, starting in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth, just like Jesus predicted. And they did. They became fearless, not because of what Jesus taught. Jesus' teachings are awesome. We talk about them all the time. But they didn't become fearless because of Jesus' teaching. They became fearless because of what they said they saw, which was Jesus rose from the grave. And it changed them. They become they became unstoppable, not because of a crucifixion. Crucifixions happened everywhere, all over the Roman Empire to t say, don't mess with us. They became fearless. They became unstoppable because of a resurrected Jesus, a glorified Jesus. A we watched him ascend into heaven, Jesus. Every one of them had a, now I understood what you, what you meant when you said the son of man must suffer and be crucified and on the third day raised again. Oh, everything happened just as you said it was, Jesus. We will follow you till the end of our lives. All of his followers came back except one. Which one? Reminds me when I was in Sunday school, the answer was almost always Jesus. That wouldn't have worked there, right? Y'all did just like my little Sunday school class. I think it's supposed to be Jesus. Judas. Judas. All right, not a trick question. I, I, don't, I don't try to trick you. Most of the time I'm trying to have a conversation. I'm trying to trick you. <coughs> Judas. Now, all, I said all of Jesus' followers were what's in it for us followers to begin with, but Judas, uh, he, was, he was a special guy. Um, now, they all looked at Jesus like he was a political leader. They thought that the Messiah was going to come overthrow Rome and reestablish the Israelite nation, then a, a political nation. And, and so they thought, well, if we're close to Jesus and as Jesus rises to power, we're going to rise to power with him. As, as the tide rises around Jesus, it floats all boats. We're going to be there. Woo but it wasn't enough just to be with Jesus when he came into power. They start arguing over who's the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Three different times they're arguing over, I'm the greatest, and Jesus has to confront them on all. Now, when I was thinking about this, I thought, who in our generation said, I am the greatest? Who, who says that all the time? Muhammad Ali. Long before Muhammad Ali used this phrase, 
is the disciples were using it. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And I read about Muhammad Ali this week. I was looking up some of his quotes and there's a story that he got on an airplane one time and he refused to, to buckle his seatbelt. And so the flight attendant comes and says, uh, sir, you really need to buckle your seatbelt before we take off. And Muhammad Ali says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no plane. To which he supposedly was humbled and put on his seatbelt. If you think you're the greatest, you should be humbled. You need to be humbled. Jesus humbled his disciples because they were arguing over this. Now, all of them were in it for themselves, but Judas was a special kind of selfish. The Bible tells us that he was the treasurer for Jesus' disciples and that he would skim some of the money from the offering. So it's safe to say that he and Jesus didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. For example, one day a Roman comes and asks Jesus to help him. Well, Judas, because Judas is a nationalist, he has to think, no way is Jesus going to help the enemy of Israel. He's not going to do that. Jesus goes, sure. Judas has to be thinking, okay, it's bad enough you let Matthew, the tax collector, be one of us, but at least that dude's Jewish. Now you're going to help the enemy of Israel? This doesn't make any sense. And while I'm airing my grievances, Jesus, what's up with you and the religious leaders of our nation? It seems like you go out of your way to heal on the Sabbath day just to tick them off. And then you call them names. You call them whitewashed tombs. You call them snakes. You call them hypocrites. Then you say to their face, your father is the devil. He's the father of lies. He's a liar from the beginning. You two are liars. What's up with that? Do you know what those people call you? The religious people that you are ticking off Jesus. Do you know what they call you? They call you a friend of sinners. They call you a friend of the enemy of Israel. And every time they call you that, the offering goes down, Jesus. Quit talking like that. This is not what we expected. You are supposed to overthrow Rome right now. When are you going to get with the program? Now, today we're going to look at a story that happens in Bethany. I told you last week, Bethany is real close to Jerusalem. Jesus was very often there because it was also the, home of, uh, the hometown of Lazarus and Mary and, and Martha, his sisters. So before I read you this today, this story is what sends Judas over the edge. I need to ask you this question. You need to ask yourself this question all through the rest of this sermon. Is there any Judas in me? And let me tell you why. Because all of us have been this consumer mentality. We've all done this to God at some point. We've all, um, we've all thought, well, my life is so bad, I might as well try God I've tried everything else. And how much of God do I have to get before he's nice to me? Like, like I'll go to church, but do I have to go three times in a row? Do I have to get one of those Haiti envelopes? And haven't you noticed the top line of the Haiti envelopes are gone? That's the least amount of money. That's the one through $25. All that's left is the 75 through 100. Do I, do I need to take one of the, do I need to take two of those so that God will pay attention to me? Do I need to throw an extra 20 bucks in the, in the offering plate, in the joy basket? What do I need to do so that God will say, oh, there you are. You're now worthy of my attention. What do you want me to do for you today? That's how we treat him. Now, let me just say, it's okay to start there as a consumer, but it is not okay to stay there. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because there's going to come a day. Actually, there's going to be many days. In fact, there have already been many days when your heavenly father's agenda, his will, and your agenda, your will, are going to come into conflict. And what you do on those days, how you respond on those days will tell you, everyone around you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're just a consumer. 
Now, Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' life. Matthew writes down what happens in Bethany in Matthew 26, starting in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were what? So indignant people don't say, why this waste? Indignant people say, why? This waste. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And that sounds so spiritual. I think this made an awkward moment at the party. Someone invites you over, a friend invites you over to their house. They serve food to you on their finest china, their best silverware, and you, being the spiritual giant that you are, you look them in the eyes and you say, seriously? Do you know how much this cost? Do you even know, poor people? What were you thinking? They say indignantly. Kind of put a damper on the party, wouldn't it? I don't care how fun it was before that. It wasn't fun after that. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus and his disciples knew Simon the leper and his family well because he was always in Bethany. Dude, that wasn't very much fun. Now, John was also an eyewitness, and John gives us a detail that Matthew left out in John chapter 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him. How would you like to have that phrase attached to you forever and ever in the best-selling book of all times? Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. And Judas says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, I do not think Judas stood up and confronted Jesus to his face. And maybe it's just all my years in church work, but here's how I think it went down. I think this happened and Judas goes... And he turns to one of the disciples and he whispers, he plants a seed of discord. Can you believe that? That's disgusting. We should have sold that, given money to the poor. Don't you agree with me? And then because superior sounding people, people who think they're superior spiritually, because they're not willing to just state their opinion and move on, they turn to someone else and say, hey, can you believe that? This is disgusting. And they turned to someone else until the whole room was in on this one opinion. And some of them start going, oh, that sounds so spiritual. In 2010, there was an earthquake in Haiti in, in January. And 10 months later, I felt like we were supposed to go. Actually, that, that spring, I felt like we were supposed to go. So we took 12 people to Haiti. And there were some people in our church then. They're no longer here. But they began to say, why would you go to Haiti? when we've got poor people here. They never said it to me, not once did they say it to me. They would turn to people in the congregation and go, can you believe? There are poor people all over this place. Why are you going to, why would you spend that much money to go to Haiti? Sounds spiritual, doesn't it? <laughs> I call that the Judas syndrome. And here's, what I, here's my definition of the Judas syndrome. If I can't have my way, I'll try to make sure nobody has their way, even God. The irony of the people who in this church said that, the irony is they did not give to the church. 
They did not serve anywhere in ministry. And to my knowledge, they've never done one thing outside the walls of any church to help the poor in this community. But they wanted their argument to sound spiritual. That's the Judas syndrome. Now, (laughs) I'm going to tell you, if you're going to have this attitude, it doesn't matter if you talk about me, I don't care. But if you're going to have the Judas attitude, be sure you don't do it to God because God will expose your motives for all to see. He does that in John chapter six, verse six. He, Judas, did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. There it is. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now let's just go back to the beginning when Jesus established this little merry band of men. And let's say that they go, oh, you know what? We're having offerings coming in and and we've got expenses going out. Judas Judas probably goes, hey, someone's got to take care of the money. I guess I'll do it. And the other disciples are like, well, we sure don't want to do it. And there's no way we're trusting Matthew to do it. I guess you'll do, Judas. You can do it. Okay, if I have to. Can I tell you something? Just because you do something outside the walls of this church does not qualify you to serve the kingdom of God inside this church. I can't tell you how many times I've been in churches for years and years where someone, they'll say that someone is a consultant, they're a lawyer, they're whatever, and they should be doing that in the church. And and someone will say, well, are they qualified? Did you not hear what I just said? They do this outside the walls of the church. Well, do they follow Jesus? Well, I think so. Do they know Jesus? Sure they do. They come to church. Are they mature in their relationship with Christ? Well, I don't know. They're as mature as anybody else. Let's put them in this position. That is a recipe for disaster. I've seen it happen over and over because if you're not a fully devoted follower of Christ, you do not need to be in a leadership position in a church because you can't lead anybody someplace you've never been. Do you know the very first disciples were chosen to serve lunch to a bunch of widow ladies? The disciples said, we're supposed to study God's word and we're supposed to pray and we can't, we got to devote to that. So they said, choose seven men, this is Acts chapter six, choose seven men who have a good reputation, who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Choose the most spiritually mature people in this church and have them serve lunch to the widows. And honestly, I think that ought to be the qualifications for anybody who serves in any ministry, especially the leadership. Someone who has got a good reputation, someone who's not a hothead, someone someone who... um, is full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. I would rather have that type of person leading in in any ministry than someone who is a consumer or or even someone who's successful and rich outside the walls. If your heart's not right, you, you can't lead. Now, Judas's motives were written down for all to see. He didn't care about the poor, he cared about himself. And really, here's what I think is his true motive. How could you do something that would impact my bank account? Who do you think you are, Jesus? God? Now, some of you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily the bank account. How, how dare you, God, call me to do something that might cost me some time? How dare you, God, call me to do something that might cost me some money? How dare you, God, call me to forgive people? Do you know what they did to me? Who do you think you are, Jesus? God? Judah's personal agenda was so strong, so dominant in his life that he would do or say anything to promote his kingdom over God's kingdom. See, Judas followed Jesus and used Jesus at the same time. Have you ever done that? 
it's always a bad idea to, to, to say something in, or whisper in Jesus' presence. It's even a bad thing that we know in the Bible. It's a bad thing to even think the wrong thoughts in Jesus' presence because he knew the thoughts and hearts of men. Look at Matthew 26, verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Today is February 25th, 2018. How did Jesus know? How did he know this was going to come true? See, someone like Judas, who was a nationalist, might say to Jesus, the world, really? She's, you're going to talk about the people in the world? are going Jesus, how can you say that? You've never been more than 25 miles from your hometown. Got a God complex much, Jesus? How did Jesus know this was going to come true? He doesn't have a God complex. He is God. And in this instance, Judas' agenda and Jesus' agenda come into conflict. And I want you to see what happens when, that, when, when it comes into conflict. Verse 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas has had enough. If you're just going to throw money away, then I'm out because you're impacting my bank account and my God is my bank account. If you don't care about this, I'm out. Besides, isn't the Messiah's job to overthrow Rome? When are you going to use your power, Jesus, to make me rich and comfortable? If God's not going to do what I want, I'm out. And I hear this. Not in these words, but I prayed, God didn't do what I wanted, I'm out. Judas goes to the religious police and he says, your problem isn't that you can't find Jesus, your problem is you can't get close to Jesus because of the crowds. I can get you there when nobody's around. They said, deal, verse 15b. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's the most ludicrous three words I think are in scripture. You're going to hand over the Messiah. You're going to force the Messiah to do something that the Messiah doesn't want to do. Judas, do you remember when y'all were in the boat going across the lake and, and you thought you were going to drown? Jesus is asleep. You wake Jesus up and Jesus looks at you. He looks at the waves. Jesus speaks to the weather and the weather says, yes, sir, we'll do whatever you say. You're going to hand that guy over. Do you remember when, when Lazarus died and Jesus comes to the tomb and the family's like, no, 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 we're good. Don't roll the stone away. It's going to stink in there. Jesus said, roll the stone away. And Jesus says to a dead corpse, come to life. And a dead corpse says, yes, sir, whatever you say. You're going to turn that guy, you're going to hand him over. Remember when Jesus healed lame people? There's people born lame, which means they would have no muscles. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And muscles come on where there's no muscles. They say, yes, sir, whatever you say, creator of the universe, you're going to turn that guy over. Who has the God complex? It's Judas. Now, we're not as guilty as Judas. But when we pray, how do we treat Jesus? We think we can manipulate him. And then we tell him to go stand in the corner until we need him again. Where's Aiden? Come here, buddy. Aiden's going to be Jesus. Now, I'm talking about following Jesus, which means he's the leader. And if you follow somebody, you should do whatever the leader does, right? But this is how most of us treat Jesus. Now, Jesus has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. 
And so we go places that we wouldn't want Jesus to go. And we try to say, no, 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 Jesus, you stay back. You say, I'm going here. You, you, stay, stay. Jesus, I'm going on spring break and you can't go. Because there's people there that you, you just, you would feel so uncomfortable. And, and I'll go. I'll be a witness for you. And if I'm not, when I come back, you and I'll hang out and we'll make things right, okay? So you stay here, spring break, I'll be back. Jesus, you're not getting it. I don't want you there. Stay here. I said stay here. I'll see you when I get back. But if I get in trouble, I expect you to come off that cross and save me. I'm not taking you to the party. I'm not taking you to the business trip. I'm not taking you to that hotel. When I need you, I'll let you know. That's how we treat him. Do whatever I want you to do, but I'm not following you. Keep your arms up, boy. You're done. You're done. I'm sorry. Thank you. Last time I used him for an illustration, I, I did the rear naked choke and almost got him. I wasn't trying to knock him down to the floor. So that was much better, wasn't it, Aiden? A little bit better. I don't need you now, but I may need you then. And you better believe I'm going to call on you. You got any Judas in you? Judas was about to learn the hard way what I'm hoping this series teaches you the easy way. And here it is. You cannot force God's hand. And you cannot stop his will. His will cannot be stopped. See, we can only guess that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. We assume that Judas wanted to speed up the process so that he could get richer quicker. So he finds his opportunity to betray Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew, eyewitness, tells us what happens next in Matthew 27, 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. Now, in reality, they had decided months before that Jesus needed to die. Before they ever had a trial, before they ever had him arrested, he's got to die. Why does he have to die? What is his crime? He claims to be God's son. Doug Washburn deserves to die because he claims to be Chuck Washburn's son. Well, that's who he is. He can prove it. It doesn't matter what you can prove. We're uncomfortable with his claim. He must die. That's what they're saying about Jesus. Doesn't matter that he's God's son. Don't confuse me with the facts. He's got to die. Verse 2, they bound him, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And here is where it goes really, really badly for Judas. We assume that Judas assumed that if he was going to turn him over to the religious leaders, they were going to try him. The Jewish people were going to try him. But the Jewish people didn't have the power to crucify Jesus. So we're assuming that, that, that Judas assumed that maybe in a Jewish trial, Jesus will finally stand up and claim to be the Messiah and do what the Messiah should be doing all along. But Rome got involved. And Judas had the biggest oops moment in history. Verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. That's not what he expected. 
He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said. We don't care, they said. We used you. You delivered. Hit the road. We're done with you. Judas' real problem is the same problem you and I have, and here it is. There are some decisions you cannot unmake. They haunt you. They follow you all the days of your life. And everybody here knows what I'm talking about. There's things you've done. There's things you've said you wish you could take back. You can't. You're just having to live with the consequences. And I want to tell you, God can forgive your sins, but God's not going to remove the consequences. God can redeem your sin and give you a ministry based on that sin, but he's not going to wipe out the consequences of your choices to sin. He doesn't do that. Judas didn't understand who Jesus was. Judas didn't understand what Jesus came to do. So Judas makes the biggest mistake of his life after betraying Jesus. I don't think betraying Jesus was his biggest mistake. The biggest mistake happens next in verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. My opinion is the only difference between Judas and Peter, because Peter betrayed him, everybody unfollowed Jesus. The only difference between Judas and the other disciples is they stayed around with the consequences of their sin until Jesus came along and forgave them and redeemed them and gave them a ministry. Judas, because he didn't know who Jesus was, because he didn't know what Jesus came to do, killed himself, played God, and took his own life rather than wait for Sunday morning when the greatest thing ever happened that changed a bad Friday into what we call good. Friday, Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 6, the chief priests picked up the coins and said, well, it's against the law for us to put this money in the treasury since it's blood money. Really? You're concerned about the law. You decided months before you were going to kill Jesus. That's against the law. You held a trial at night, which is against your law. You don't have the power to condemn somebody. That's against the law. Only the Romans can do that. So you go to the Romans and you get them to rubber stamp this, this unlawful verdict you came to. Really, you're going to tell me you care about the law? Verse 7, so they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. You can Google it. It's still there if you go to the Holy Land. You can go to the field of blood if you'd like to. It's purchased with the money that, G that Judas threw away because he felt so bad because his plan did not turn out like he thought. And here's the amazing thing. Judas trying to force the Messiah to do something that, that he thought he should do actually becomes a footnote, an accidental footnote in your salvation and mine. <laughs> it's as if you cannot force God's hand. And it's as if his will cannot be stopped, no matter what you do. So what does that mean for you? Every one of us starts off with this death grip on my plan. <laughs> and we pray, God, please bless my will, bless my life, this is what I want. And if ever my will and your will come into conflict, my will be done. The longer you follow, the more Jesus begins to pry your little fingers off of your will and the more he begins to open up your hands and this is what he's looking for. He's looking for someone who will receive from him and share with others. Receive from him, share with others. This is God's plan for how we reach the world for Christ. And when you're holding on tight, you cannot receive from God and pass on to others. 
Is it safe to say that Judas's agenda and God's agenda were in conflict? Is it safe to say that the majority of the time your agenda and God's agenda are not the same? What you do at that moment will tell you and everybody else whether you're a follower or a consumer. And when God makes his will clear to you, his plan for you clear, it's going to feel like something you have to do regardless of what the morality police tell you you should do. Some of you know what you need to do, and you've known it for a long time. You need to break up with that person who's not a Christian. But have you seen them? They're hot. Anybody can become a Christian, Jesus, but, but nobody can be that hot. So here's what we'll do. I'll be spiritual enough for the both of us. And you say, what does it matter? If I'm a Christian, I can be your witness. This is a good plan, Jesus. What you're saying is, I'd rather hold on to this than follow you. I'd rather hold on to this relationship. I'd rather hold on to this job. I'd rather hold on to this um, house, this car, whatever it is that you're worshiping. I'd rather hold on to the, this than follow you because if I let go, it's going to feel like a death and I cannot live without him, her job, car. I can't, I can't. Reality is you can't hold on to that stuff and follow Jesus at the same time. So I want to offer something to you today. This is a prayer that you can pray. If you want clarity, if you want power to come into your life from God that's never been there before, you say this prayer. God, I want what you want more than what I want. We say, my will be, your will be done, not mine. Thy will be done, not mine. But let's be, let's be honest today. Some of you are not ready to pray that prayer. So I've got an alternate prayer. God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. Now, this, this is a real prayer. <laughs> and I offer you this prayer because some of you, some of you are going to walk away. You're going to turn your back and you're going to say, nope, you're going to walk away again. And you're going to say to Jesus, Jesus, you stay right there because I'll be back when my plans don't work out again. I'll be back. <laughs> what I'd rather you do is I'd rather you start praying something like this um, years ago. Uh, I saw something that Hannah and her friends were doing and there was this TBH thing. And I said, what is TBH? And, and those of you who are teenagers, you know, to be honest. So to be honest, you're awesome. To be honest, you're beautiful, whatever. So here's, here, that's just funny. That's just the way my mind works. So to be honest, here's what you say to God. To be honest, God, I don't want to break up. To be perfectly honest, God, I don't want to do your will. I don't want to quit my job. I don't want to share my deepest, darkest secrets from my past. I don't want to speak up that this is wrong. I don't want to unfriend that person. To be honest, I don't want to do your will, but I want to want to do your will. You pray that long enough, God's going to pry your little fingers off your measly plans. And he's going to let you in on something that lasts for eternity and you can receive from God and you can pass on so that when you get to heaven, there will be people who welcome you and say, I'm here because you came to Haiti. I'm here because you gave away some clothes. I'm here because you gave away some food. I'm here because you didn't hold on to your plan. You received from God and you passed on to someone else. Now you need to understand this. Jesus did not stop Judas from doing what Judas intended to do. Oh God, if it's not your will, close the door. 
and you have every intention of walking through that door, whether it's closed or not, you'll bust through that door. Jesus didn't stop Judas from doing what Judas intended to do, but neither did Judas stop Jesus from doing what Jesus intended to do. So your heavenly father is not going to stop you from doing what you intend to do anyway. And that ought to scare our hands off of our plans because there are some decisions you cannot unmake. They will haunt you. They will follow you. And if Judas was here today, I think he would tell us this message. I think he would say, blessed is the one who chooses to do the will of God rather than to be foolish enough to force my will on the Messiah, the one who speaks and things are created. That's just foolishness. See, Judas learned the hard way. You can't force God's hand. You cannot stop his will. So why not get in on it? The greatest plan in history. Do you bow your heads? Some of you just need to get honest. You got secrets that everybody already knows. The only one you're fooling is yourself. You're not fooling your heavenly father. You're not fooling your friends and your family. Satan is deceiving you. So I'm begging you to wake up before it's too late and follow Jesus. Father, we love you and we praise you. And I thank you that you, you are a God of a second, third, 1,000th chance. But God, some of us are on chance number 1,000. And we may not have another. Show us that it is serious business to walk away from you. And give us a heart to obey. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.